had a good summer? If you had a good summer, raise your hand. Let me see your hand. If you had a good summer, great. Are you, you wish summer wasn't over yet? Raise your hands. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm ready for routine. Well, that we've had a good summer. We've done all kinds of traveling and lots of things around here. We've got some staycation and kinds of things. And Donna turned 50 a week ago. And so you can clap for her because she's going to be right there. I know. I know she doesn't look 50. Donna, she makes 50 look like a new 40. And so when we walk into a place and somebody says, it's so nice of you to bring your daughter here, um, I know. Yeah. 
series. This series will take up most of the fall. First and second Corinthians are longer letters. We're going to you know, pick and choose some places where we'll study and go through the books, the letters. But I want you to do two things. And the first is this. I want you to read through first and second Corinthians as we go through the series. And so you can do it slow. You can do it fast. If you read a chapter or two a week, you would finish before we finish the series. And so I just want you to take some time, you, by yourself, with your Bible. And I want you to sit down wherever it is that you sit down, whether it's your living room or your kitchen or your desk or your porch. Open up the Bible and just read it then. You don't have to read it from beginning to end. If you're reading too much, slow down. If you're reading not enough, speed up. If you're confused, keep reading. If you don't know what it means, don't worry about it. Most people don't. It's okay. If this is a new muscle that you're using, it's going to be sore and feel awkward. You're not even sure what to do with it. But just engage with us as a church body and read some as we go. If you're not sure where to start, start at the beginning. If you don't like doing things in order, start at the middle. It doesn't matter to me as long as you're opening up Scripture and reading on your own and just taking something in. And you'll find some of the most incredible passages in the entire Bible in these two books. You'll read the love chapter you've heard in every way you've ever been in. You'll read this section about us being jars of clay. It's absolutely incredible. You'll read about troubles and issues in a church, and you will think, I wonder if that's going on in our church. You will read incredible things. And so, just take some time and read through it together. Now, here's the deal. You won't do this if you don't make yourself a note. 
apostle of Christ. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And our brother, say it with me. Sosthenes. And I nailed it. Good job. Now we'll all say it together. Sosthenes. And so as we unfold this book, we're going to figure out who that guy is and why Paul mentions him and where Corinth is and what's going on with Paul and why is he writing the letter. But as he does all of this, he's doing it just like you and I would write a letter. He's got He's going to put his name, and he's going to have a salutation, and he's going to write it to this group of people who lived in a specific time and a specific place. And as he does so, some incredible things are going to unfold. That's the very first verse. And then he says this in verse 2. To the what? To what? To the church of God in where? Corinth is a city. You find it today on the map. To those sanctified, good word to me, covered by the blood of Jesus. In Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together gives you some idea of what the church is. Together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And so for us to begin, we'll start with that first yellow word. We'll start with the word church. We're going to frame a few ideas and help us understand a little bit better why Paul wrote these letters and where we're going as a body. So Greek word. 
not even Christian, churchy, religious word. In fact, this word existed very commonly before the church even began. And all it means, before the church started in the book of Acts, a group of people were called together for a specific purpose. And so in the culture of that day and time, the first century, it's a group of people who gathered for a civic meeting, a community meeting, maybe a military gathering. could be a certain family gathering for a specific purpose. It never had anything to do with a time specifically or a place or a location. It's a group of people who came together. What the literal meaning is called out for a specific purpose. But for you and I, church means something different, doesn't it? Church means a place, a location, an organization, an institution, walls, a building, a physical address, time that it begins, and hopefully a time that it ends, because we've got lunch to get to, and this is what church means to us as evidence by every sentence we referenced just a moment ago. It's time to go to church. It's a place, a time, hierarchy, government, associated, of course, with leaders, leaders who serve, and people who talk, and people who watch. And that, of course, is vastly different. Worlds away from what was meant in the New Testament when the word is written, Ecclesia. So why do we translate it church? How did we get so far from Ecclesia to church? It's a great question. For us to understand it, we have to do a little bit of a history lesson. Really fast. Here in the past, you guys look like you're smart people. I think you can go fast with me. Here's how it begins. Constantine, who was a ruler of part of the Roman Empire at first, and then eventually ruled over the entire Roman Empire, he stopped the persecution of Christians in AD 313 with an edict called the Edict of Milan. And if you remember a little bit of history, some of this might come back to you. You might remember in the first couple hundred years of Christianity, after the church began, there was intense persecution. The reign of Nero, Christians were killed and martyred. It was illegal to be a follower of Jesus because every Christian said, we have no king but Jesus, no emperor but Jesus. He is our king. And this threatened every political hierarchy that existed, especially the Roman Empire. So they made it illegal to be a Christian, and they stopped Christians, they taught Christians, and they, they imprisoned Christians, and they killed and martyred many, many Christians. And then around the year 300, Constantine, who ruled the Western half of the Roman Empire, said, we're going to say that you must treat Christians with kindness. You cannot persecute Christians anymore. This wasn't law. It was an edict, in other words, a good idea that the emperor says you should follow. And eventually, as his influence grew, this idea took on more and more weight. Eventually, he became emperor of the entire Roman kingdom. And then about that time, Constantine, not only did he write the edict, he became a Christian. He surrendered his life, as history says, some debate about this, and the ideas of the gospel and who Jesus is. And so now the Christians have not only just this edict protecting them, but now the emperor himself is a follower of Jesus. 
shifts in culture that would have occurred. Christians are tired of this, hidden, running. Some of them, of course, frightened and scared. Many of them barely emboldened and strong in their faith. When persecution hits the community, there are a variety of responses. But now, all that has changed. 313 and the years that follow, everything changes from top to bottom. Now it's not just fashionable to be a Christian. Now the powers that be, they advocate. And along with all of this changing and shifting, not only is the faith becoming more acceptable, but connected to the faith are things like wealth, hierarchy, authority, and power. And everything began to change. Let me say this way. I cannot overstate the seismic shift that occurred when Constantine became Christian and what that did to the trajectory of the church. It changed everything. And most things, not for the best. If we look at history, pay attention to what's going on right now in our culture. When the, the interesting combination of politics and religion become deeply intertwined, interesting things begin to happen. Are you seeing it now? Are you paying attention to what's happening in our culture? When this occurs, now you have the tenets of Jesus mixed with the principles of power and wealth, authority and influence. Church and state. The interesting result, well, now worship has changed. Not only did they used to just meet in homes, now they're meeting out in the open. It, when persecution occurs, a couple of things happen to the church, historically speaking. This is true about the first century here in modern-day China. When persecution occurs, believers become more purified. In other words, those who are just kind of hanging out on the fringe benefits, they say, no, we don't need anything to do with this. The other thing that happens, once the church is more purified, the church begins to grow in number. What happens when the opposite occurs? When persecution is gone, when the state advocates for the religion, well, often the opposite happens as well. And so this is what occurred. And so not only did this happen, Constantine, however, he declares himself a Christian, the gatherings of believers began to shift from their homes to newly constructed buildings. So earlier in Christian history, here's, you know, beginning of the church to about 250 A.D., Christians would often meet and gather for communion or a service occasionally around the site or the location of a martyr's death. This would have happened for the early Christians where Stephen was killed. This would have happened where many other people were killed. And they would meet, gather for communion, and then they would again disperse and go about their business. With now the state behind them, with the authority of the state and now finances and money and political power, the Romans took this to a new level. They began to build buildings on the sites of martyrs' deaths. And these new buildings were the very first Christian church buildings. So how many of you have been to Europe or England and seen some of the ancient church buildings? Who's seen those? So when you're there, what's the most interesting thing that you find on the insides of these buildings? You find tombs and sarcophagus. Boxes full of bones, martyrs, and previous Christians. In fact, we, we went through Westminster Abbey when we were over in England, and there were more dead people in 
use another name, Erica. This was the German name that they would use, the more modern word translates into the same word as this word, Kirch, which of course we get the word church. Most of your Bible is a translation directly from, in the New Testament, the Greek words into English. Your Old Testament is a translation mostly from Hebrew words into English. The word church is not a translation. It's not even a transliteration. It's not even a paraphrase. It's a substitution of a word. It has nothing to do with the way we understand what an ecclesia is. The word church had so much cultural influence by the time our Bible was translated, it was used in almost every translation. It is still used today in almost every English translation. In almost every instance in the New Testament, it's a translation of the word ecclesia. And the ideas between church and ecclesia could not be more different. A church is a location, and ecclesia is not. A church can be locked up and secured. You cannot lock up a locked up with ecclesia. No way. Uh, a church that has a location and is a place now has some control, and the people that control the church are the people that own the church. And in this case, in the early days of these church buildings, it was the government. The government owned the building, they owned the people, and they owned access to the scriptures. So much so that in most early churches, there was only one copy of the Bible. Where was it? You might know. Historically speaking, it contained in the church building, and it was literally chained to the floor. Could not leave. Here's what happens when you marry religion and politics. When you marry the teachings of Jesus with the terms of power and wealth and influence, the leaders knew that if we control the building, we control the people, we control the word of God, we control their understanding of what a church is, and we need, well, it's the center of all politics, we need control. And this is why the word church survived the way it did. It's more than just two different words or a poor translation. It puts it in a place where we misunderstand the very nature of what Jesus started with his life and his ministry. And so history continued, and here's what happened. In 3 AD, Christianity, not just the Edict of Milan, not just Constantine becoming a Christian, but the Emperor that followed Constantine, he declared that the state religion 
your love and mercy. Conversations. If we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out, and it affects how we do our jobs, it affects how we parent, it affects every aspect of our lives. And so we recognize that yes, yes, as we come to church and we learn and we worship and we do gather together, and it gives us strength for the journey of the week. But the real work happens when we leave this place. So Lord, we ask that we would live with this understanding that we belong to Jesus and that Jesus belongs to us and that we walk with you every step of the day. Would you transform us? Would you use us? Would we maybe take a different view than we are in fact called out to walk with one another and change the world? One person, one conversation, one moment at a time. Lord, we definitely want to know you and for you to use us in this world.